we can talk about what it was like when you were working for him too, because I'm doing it now and I love it. I love working in this program. Oh, right on, right on. It was really fun. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people just like you who are doing great things in the world. And today's guest really is amazing. If you don't know about her, you are going to love her. We've traveled in concentric circles for years, sometimes appearing together at, at events like the Dr. McDougall uh, Celebrity Chef Weekend. And last time I saw her actually was probably five years ago when she was a judge in an Iron Chef competition that I was uh, chefing at with Chef Ramses Bravo. And she, she just, you know, if you, she just, she's sort of like, she reminds me of John Pierre. She just embodies kindness, compassion. That's what she teaches. She's vegan, of course, talented chef, many books, wonderful podcasts, but you know, she just, she, she I put her in the same category as St. Miyoko. She's one of those people that just, that's why you know, I want to cry because it's a shirt from Miyoko. She's, she's one of the people that inspires me to be a better person. Please welcome Colleen Patrick Rudro. I am so excited to talk to you. Oh, that is the best introduction. Thank you. Those are really, really special people to be, to be compared to. Yeah. So, so you, you know, you're multi-talented, you podcast, you write cookbooks, you're a chef, but I think really the heart of you is this compassion piece, which I don't want to say I'm missing it, but it's not what I've been prioritizing. And it's funny how the universe keeps knocking on my door with these shows, because yesterday when I was interviewing John Mackey on conscious leadership, basically what he was talking about was compassion. And the show before I was interviewing a lady from Rancho La Puerta on intention setting, and then she's talking about forgiveness. So it's like, this just keeps showing up. And so this is one of the things I definitely want to talk to you about. But first, I want to ask you how you are, how's the pandemic been treating you? What have you been up to? That kind of stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm good. We're good. We're here in Oakland, California. Uh, my husband and, um, and of course, my two cats, of course, Charlie is here with us today because the motto in our home is where I am, there they are. Uh, so uh, yeah, we're, we're good. Uh, you know, one of the things that came of the pandemic is that I started teaching an online cooking classes, which I hadn't been doing before. And so that was, you know, a positive thing that came out of it. I had already uh, led a work, uh, a conference, a weekend long conference online in February before COVID. And that was a perfect, that was just perfect because it, it allowed me to pivot over to the online classes. So, uh, so yeah, Zoom is our friend and, uh, and yeah, we, we hike a lot. I cook a lot. I write a lot. We, um, I'm very lucky that my husband and I really love um, being in each other's company because <laughs> we've been in it incessantly. <laughs> um, but that's what we chose and it's, uh, it's really lovely. So uh, yeah, so lots of lessons and gifts from, from 2020. How about you? How are you doing? doing I mean, I, I feel bad that I'm doing so good, but this is how the show started was as a chance to just uh, communicate with my what I thought was my group, but I pushed the wrong button on the first day and my show went out to everybody and people watched and then friends came on. So I created this daily show, sometimes two or three times daily called Chef AJ Live. And I'm loving it because I really, believe it or not, like talking to other people more, interviewing them, hearing them than, because I, I feel like I say the same thing over and over, you know, eat plants. <laughs> yeah, right. How many variations of that can there be? <laughs> so uh, tell us, you have a new book coming out. Tell, tell us about it. Yeah, it came out. It came out last year. It came out at the end of last year, and uh, and it and COVID did affect the book tour for it, which was unfortunate. Uh, and so it's a book called The Joyful Vegan, 
And it's really about, I had done a podcast series on what I call the 10 stages of what happens when you stop eating animals. And what it is, is really kind of the second part, the 30 day vegan challenge is my book from 2011. And that book guides people through the transformation and the process of becoming vegan. And so covering all of the typical questions we get, all of us get about protein, about B12, about calcium, about, you know, what to cook and what to eat and, you know, and what about the holidays and where to shop and kind of all of the basics that people all uh, ask about when they first transition to being vegan. What I have found in the 20 years I've been doing this work is that, of course, there are many people who do stay vegan, but there are a lot of people who struggle. And they struggle not only staying vegan, but they struggle uh, being joyful. <laughs> they struggle staying joyful. They struggle um, just kind of navigating living in a non-vegan world because that's the reality. And so what I started doing, AJ, which was really interesting and I really loved it, was I started identifying these different experiences that I think are universal for all of us who go through this. And it's whether you go through it for ethical reasons or environmental reasons or how, well, it doesn't matter what door you came through, but living as a vegan or someone is plant, it doesn't matter, plant-based, vegan, just being not being part of the status quo uh, has its own challenges and so i started identifying these stages and and they're not they're not stages where you are you know they're mandatory they're not stages that you have to go through they're rather kind of mirrors to hold up to say this is this is typical for people who go through this and 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 does this look like you and if so uh you know here are uh, here are the characteristics of these different stages and then also here are the risks that if you don't manage this stage, you could A, stop being joyful and B, stop being vegan. And so when I started doing that as a podcast series, people were just blown away because it it gave them the language to say, that's me, that's what I'm going through. So for instance, stage one is the voracious consumption of information. So when you first become vegan, and again, whether it's for health or ethics, you just consume everything you could possibly consume to learn about this issue. You watch documentaries, you read books, right? You 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 start cooking, you get cookbooks. And, and, and so uh, uh, that's stage one, the voracious consumption of information. The risk, if you don't manage that, is that if you overwitness, uh, you could actually get into some dangerous territory. And that goes for people who are kind of overwatching, you know, slaughter videos or even getting too obsessed around food, uh, that can also be a problem. So I talk about the risks and then how to manage that so that you can stay joyful and you can stay vegan. You know, stage two uh, is is remorse because a lot of people feel like, how, how could I not have known this? How could I be an adult and a smart adult and an intelligent adult and a thinking adult and not know this, whatever this is, whether it's about nutrition and it's about, you know, animal products contributing to heart disease or or if it's about the torture that animals go through. How could I not have known this? And so I navigate people through that because of course, if you don't manage remorse, you become so overwhelmed with guilt and shame that that becomes a problem. So how do you manage that? Uh, stage three is coming out. Stage five is anger. So, so people, when I would meet them at events, they would say, thank you so much for that series. I'm in stage five and I'm trying to get out of it. Like they, they had words for what their experiences were. And I, I just loved that. And so I wanted to put it in a book 
And so I did. And, uh, and, and that's the book that came out um, last year, which is called The Joyful Vegan. So that's, that's the gist of it. Well, I said, here's a question from Mandy. Would you recommend this book for somebody that's already a long-term vegan? Definitely. And I think I've had this conversation with my publisher because, you know, the titles and the subtitles are the hardest things because you just want to nail it and it's not always easy. And, and so the subtitle is how to stay vegan in a non-vegan world, uh, you know, know, how to stay vegan in a world that wants you to eat meat, dairy, and eggs. And I know that there are vegans who look at that subtitle and say, well, that's not me. I'm always going to be vegan. I would never not be vegan. And it's like, well, that's not, that's just, that's not only what it's about. It is first of all about, again, kind of finding a language for the experiences that we all encounter in this non-vegan world. My favorite chapter is chapter one, which is willful blindness. Yeah. What is that? Cause I, I, I like that term a lot. Cause I, I, I listen. Yeah, I'll talk about it because what I want to say is that even if so, so even if you don't think you're at risk for, for stopping being vegan, the other issue is that we have to understand why other people do stop. And we have to understand why people struggle. It's not enough to say, well, they didn't care enough or they're not compassionate enough or they're too selfish. That's that's not an answer that doesn't get us anywhere. So if you can understand why people struggle, then you're gonna be better able to support them and help them. And, and then, like I said, understanding why people avoid becoming vegan in the first place. When I say becoming vegan, I mean, reflecting their own values of compassion and wellness. So if people are going, don't tell me, I don't wanna know, well, why are they doing that? Well, they're evil, no. <laughs> That's not the reason, right? The majority of people walking around on this planet are not evil and they're not stupid and they're not unkind. What they are is willfully blind. And so what does that mean? We are human beings who I believe at our core are compassionate. We wanna do the right thing. In fact, we as a species have to believe we are good people. That is part of like our makeup. We have to believe we're good people. That's why we couch even things that are harmful in positive ways, because we have to believe that what we're doing is good, right? So we have to have this this belief and perception of ourselves. When we go about our lives and we participate in things that are anathema to that, that are antithetical to to the things that make us good, we have to then, now we have this cognitive dissonance, right? We're good people, but we're contributing to harm. We're compassionate, but we're contributing to violence, right? We're, you know, we care about the earth, but we're contributing to the degradation of environmental, you know, integrity. So, so in order to, in order to reconcile that, you have to either change your thinking about what you're doing, or you have to change your behavior, right? And what's going to be the easiest thing of the two is to change the way we think about what we're doing. So we have to reframe harmful behavior in a way that's positive. And that's literally what willful blindness is. It's a way to reconcile that cognitive dissonance that says I'm a good person, but I'm contributing to harm. So, so you can't, you can't hold both of those things. You have to choose one or the other. Many people choose changing behavior and they become vegetarian or they become vegan. Many people choose the willful blindness until they can't anymore. (laughs) And so we live in a society and among people that 
contributes to us wanting to be willfully blind. We all support each other in being willfully blind. We surround ourselves with people who believe the same things we do, the companies and the industries that want us to believe that there's no harm in consuming animal products, give us the marketing language, and then we take it and we re regurgitate it. So we're supported in that willful blindness so much so that's why when a, someone becomes vegan, you know, everyone gets angry because you're basically upsetting the whole structure and you're rocking the boat. So understanding that that's the structure and understanding that that's what we're doing, I think is really helpful to not only feeling more confident in your own decisions, but also supporting others in theirs. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that we live in a society where people value convenience over compassion. Absolutely. I mean, so again, it's it's not that we're it's it's not that that we're not compassionate. It's that we we're kind of always choosing one thing or another, and we live in a society where, of course, the quickest, most convenient, easiest thing is usually valued, and um, that's why we have fast food restaurants. That's why we have we can barely be called food, uh, but that's why we have you know to go. Meet. That's why we have all these frozen processed products because we want something that's just going to take five minutes to make. We think that's, you know, the, 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 good, the good thing. Well, you know, if you're rushed for time, maybe as an exception, that's fine. But as the rule, there are consequences to that. And so if we're constantly choosing things that we think are the easiest path, there's usually consequences and not just to ourselves. So, so, so that's a huge aspect. And then the other part of all of this, and I, it has to be said, is that the focus in the joyful vegan is really on the social aspects, is really as us as social beings. And there again, there are people who will say, and there are vegans who will say, well, if someone just cares about what other people think, then they're selfish. I'm not like that. I don't care what people think. I'm gonna stay vegan for the animals, whatever it is. Well, oh, good, good for you. <laughs> And that just that's not how we're made up. We're made up as social creatures. We evolved as social creatures. And, and being part of a community means everything to us. And if we feel that we're just constantly battling our friends, our family, society, coworkers, neighbors, if we're constantly feeling at odds and you think that being vegan is the thing that puts you at odds, you're going to say, well, I can't do like, I can't do this. Now you're not going to couch that in. I can't do this. I failed. You're going to couch this in. This was too hard. It's not healthy. I got sick, right? You're, you have to couch it in a positive way. However, I just, I just want to end with this. There may be situations where you feel like you're at odds and you may have conflict with your family and you may have conflict with neighbors and it might feel annoying to always have to be the one saying, can we go to this restaurant? Can we get this food? But that's on us. And so in the end, in the end, all of this is about how we respond to this. And that's what I give people the tools for is feeling confident, is understanding why family pushes back and not taking it personally in learning how to communicate what we want. You know, you go to a restaurant and you're like, I'm so sorry. Sorry, I'm such a pain. I'm gonna be the pain in the butt vegan. Can you tell me if there's any animal products? Well, how do you think people are gonna to respond to that? They're gonna be like, oh God, it's that person. But if you show up and you're like, hey, I don't need animal products. Can you tell me what I can eat on your menu? Then people go, okay, I'll tell you, right? So how we present this to the world also determines how other people respond. You know, one of the things you said that I thought was so interesting because I thought about the people that I work with that are trying to lose weight that that give up my, doing my program. You said that people stop being vegan based on the difficulty navigating the social, cultural, and emotional pressures of the real world, and how well they do that is going to determine whether or not they stay vegan. 
Yeah. So again, you're going to always have the pressures. The issue isn't that the world is, you know, going to become a perfect place and, and then we can all be happy. You're always going to have pressure. You're always going to be swimming against the tide if it's if it's doing something that's different than everybody else. Okay, how do you respond to that? That's not on them. If your family has a problem with it or you go to a restaurant and they don't have anything you can eat or, you know, it's raining and you can't go exercise, that's none of that is anybody else's responsibility but yours then you have to make different decisions you have to take responsibility and i think that to me is the most i mean that's the crux is that in the end it all of this is up to us and i think that's really empowering and i think it's really scary it's really empowering because we're in control it's really scary because we're in control and in the end there's nobody else to blame <laughs> if we do something if something happens that you know that we don't like in the end we are responsible bottom line so voracious vegan who by the way congratulations on winning a big prize in my contest she won a year supply of date syrup and she sent me three bottles that was so nice mm. she's talking about miley cyrus and she's saying how do we prevent experiences from hers like hurting the movement well you're in luck because colleen has an entire podcast based on that subject and she specifically mentions miley cyrus yeah, I am like the, the last person who should be talking about celebrities because I do not watch celebrity culture. But of course, you can't avoid these kinds of things, especially in the vegan community when it comes up. So yes, AJ is right. I have an entire episode called um, Ex-Vegans and Ex-Vegan Celebrities. And, you know, I don't know, it's called In Defense of Miley Cyrus or something like that, meant to be provocative. Uh, because the point is, if you think that one person named Miley Cyrus can bring down the whole movement, you're giving a little too much power to this one person. So that's the first thing I would say uh, is she's one person. And and I go into great detail about, again, understanding why people struggle. And because I can say something about Miley Cyrus, I can say, you know, maybe she was feeling the pressure. Maybe she, you know, and when I say she was feeling the pressure, that means that she didn't have the tools or she wasn't uh, accessing the tools that she has uh, to, to withstand the pressure, whatever it is. But nonetheless, she's a human being who lives in the same world we do. And we all experience uh, uh pressure and we all experience um, pushback, right? Even celebrities and even celebrities with a lot of money, like money and celebrity does not protect you from being human and from all of the insecurities that we experience. So I don't know Miley Cyrus from Adam. I don't know her at all. I have no idea what her, her issues are, but I do know that I will say that one thing we do know about when people stop being vegan is many of them, a high percentage of, the, of them want to come back. And if we're just critical and mean and, and just unkind and judgmental, like if you think people want to be part of a club like that, you're wrong. Cause, cause she can hear it. Now I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm using Miley as an example, right? But people can see what you're saying and the kinds of responses that I see people have when these things happen are just so soul crushing, like to see how people characterize other human beings you know, failures and faults. Like we're, we're all struggling here. We're all trying to do the best we can. So in the end, I think modeling is the best thing we can do. So we, if we want to, you know, be the best, most, if we want the world to be as compassionate as possible, we need to be as compassionate as possible. So 
I have a lot to say about that. You can listen to the podcast. Well, well, you know, it's just uh, what what, what really uh, struck out is you said something like that the person that is the least deserving of compassion is probably the person that needs it the most. And while it's true, it's very difficult. It is the most difficult thing, but that doesn't mean we don't try. You know, we're going to fail, you know, shoot for the moon, you'll hit the stars. I mean, it is very difficult. But again, in the end, if some, I mean, I know this is controversial, but even if someone else is behaving badly, it's still about how we respond. It's not about them. It's about us. Each of us are only responsible. We're only responsible for our own response to things, our own thoughts, our own actions, our own words. So, so yeah, even the unkindest person deserves compassion, not because you're condoning bad behavior, but because, because how else do you put compassion in the world except to demonstrate compassion? And I think the problem with compassion, it's really such a shame, AJ, we talked briefly before we hit record is, you know, and I didn't say this, but I wanted to say this, is that I really find that even if you go look at titles on, you know, in bookstores of, of books about compassion, so many of them, most of them are um, around Buddhism and I think it's just a shame because I feel like we've given over this concept of compassion to, you know, which I, I think Buddhism is a wonderful religion and a wonderful um, way of, of practicing in the world. But compassion, like this is a universal principle. And there's so many misconceptions about it. The biggest one you just said, which is that if I show compassion to someone, even someone who behaves badly, like abhorrently, then I'm condoning the behavior. I think that's a real misconception. And I think it's a real shame because uh, that's, it's, it's, the, it's the absolute opposite. You know, it's just interesting to me, though, that why so many celebrities feel the need to, when they go vegan, go vegan publicly with a big, big bang. And then also when they're not vegan to, to say, because I, I find that people that have done my weight loss program do the same thing. They start out, they're having success and they do blogs and YouTubes and Facebooks look at me. And then when it doesn't work, then they bash the program just like like they bash some. I'm not saying Miley is bashing veganism, yeah. but there are some celebrities that afterwards, then they come out in the other way saying how unhealthy it is. Not, not that it didn't work for me, but that it's unhealthy. It doesn't work. You shouldn't do it. See, there's a difference. Of course. And that's back to, we have to couch our behavior in a way that makes us look good. Who's going to come out and say, I had some character flaws and I had some moral failings and I wasn't disciplined and therefore I didn't continue. Very few people are going to do that. They have to couch it in a way that makes it seem like it's out of my control. I wasn't in control. I would do this if I could. I mean, you hear a lot of ex-vegans say like, if I could have, I would have continued as if somebody else is pulling the strings in their life. Like you're the one who makes the decisions. Like you're the one who literally puts the food in your mouth. I'm thinking as an adult, you, no one else is feeding you. So the idea that we just give over responsibility is part of that need to, to couch bad behavior, a harmful behavior uh, in a positive way. But I want to touch on what you said about why um, celebrities are, um, you know, feel inclined to make a big deal about it. We all do. When we read something we love, when something is in our life that, is, that has changed our lives and changed our thinking, we become passionate about it. We want to share it with the world. We want to shout it from the rooftops. That's one of the stages I talk about in The Joyful Vegan. We all do that. The difference is Miley Cyrus has millions of followers, you know, 
we don't, I don't, right? So the point is that everybody does that or, or even the weight loss folks you're talking about. Th that's what we do when we're really passionate about something. Um, that's a natural, um, that's just a natural response. We want to share good news with each other. That's, so this is all in the chapter called evangelism or vigangelism. Uh, and I talk about evangelism. Uh, the word evangelism means literally spreading the good news. So we all do that. The problem is now you've put yourself, you know, you've made expectations both of yourself and of other people. And that's the problem. And then again, I would just say, well, then that's our problem. If you had expectations of somebody, that's your problem. Even if someone comes out and says, I'm vegan now, it's the best thing in the world. I want the whole world to be vegan. You know, it's the same thing when like Ellen DeGeneres like came out and she said she wasn't vegan. Everyone's like, I'm so disappointed. If you're disappointed in someone, it's because you had expectations of them. I know that's very difficult to hear because people want to say, no, they're a thoughtly. They're the ones who, she said it, she came out, she's got followers, she's got a responsibility. No, 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 no. If you had expectations of anybody, I don't care if it's your mother or Ellen DeGeneres, you had expectations, which means, you know, you're going to be disappointed. So again, in the end, it still comes back to us. And I think that's just a lot easier to handle because I know that uh, like, it's enough just dealing with me, like my life <laughs> and my thinking and my behavior, like it's enough just to deal with me. I don't want to also have to deal with, you know, trying to control the rest of the world. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes I hear people say, uh, well, if you, if you're vegan for the animals, you'll never stop being vegan. And I, you know, I went, that's why I went vegan at the age of 17. I also heard a statistic from a guest this week. And I don't know if it's true that most people go vegan between the ages of 17 and 25, like, like college almost. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So so there are data that indicate that there's a higher rate of recidivism in people who do it for health reasons. And it's a slight difference. It's not a huge difference. And there's a couple different reasons that could be why. Some of it could be what I was talking about in the stage one is the voracious consumption of information. If you, um, if you subscribe to rigid eating and you believe that that veganism or plant-based eating or whatever is going to be the, uh, you know, just the, the savior to all of your health problems and you have any kind of health issue, you're going to blame it on that you're going to blame it on veganism. And then you swing to the other side and you stop being vegan. Some of it is because people who do do it for health or weight loss do tend to, um, again, participate in rigid eating, like calorie restriction, like this kind of rigid eating where you're only eating one kind of food or you're eliminating a lot of other foods. And when you do that, the risk is just higher that you're not going to feel as good. The problem is all you need to do is add more calories or add more of this or add more of that or just change things. But what happens is they usually throw the baby out with the bathwater. So that's one of the reasons why it there does seem to be a higher rate of recidivism among people who say they do it for health or diet. Um, among those who do it for ethics, there is data to suggest this. And I think this is very interesting. I think there's something there. I remember hearing a story years ago, and I have worked so hard to find the actual study, um, and I haven't been able to. It was, a, it was a story in NPR, and it was basically about how there seems to be evidence that if we make behavior change changes that are based on the knowledge that someone else is harmed if I participate in this behavior, we're more inclined to not participate in that behavior. So for instance, there was a woman who talked about how she had quit smoking and she quit smoking for herself 
you know, because she was, it was unhealthy. And, you know, I think her daughter was like, you need to quit. Fine. So she quit. She wanted to start smoking again. And what she started to do was think about what her daughter's life would be like if she died of lung cancer. And just thinking about how her daughter would be affected by her death stopped her from picking up a cigarette again. And I think there's something to that when it comes to people who stop eating animals because they don't wanna to contribute to violence against them. When your motivation is for someone else, there does seem to be a bit more of a stickiness and you do tend to not want to cause harm to them, which I think is very interesting because it says that we, again, you know, we're more altruistic and care more about what other people that, that other people or other beings don't suffer uh, than only ourselves. So, so, you know, but it's both. I mean, you know, some of this is anecdotal, but in the end, I still think it comes down to the social and emotional and cultural aspects. You know, I've heard vegans, even prominent vegans actually saying, well, if you're not vegan for the animals, you shouldn't be vegan. And to me, that's kind of stupid because I don't think the animals personally care why a person doesn't eat them. Of course not. Of course not. And again, it's, it's, I, I, if, if you think, you know, if you think that people are going to respond to that, <laughs> like, I think that's really misguided because people don't respond to judgment. We just don't like, we, I don't know, like think for a moment, if there's ever been a time where someone like gave you some kind of like they judged you or they wagged their finger in your face or they told you you were bad or they told you you were uncompassionate they told you you didn't care they told you how do you respond to that i mean your response is usually like okay i'm out like i don't want to be i don't want to talk to you like you don't make me feel good and so there's just no upside to just concluding that the only way to live in this world is the way you think people should live in this world. There's just, there's just very little upside to it. So you can think that it's just, um, it's just not going to work. <laughs> What's interesting is um, I, I sometimes vegans are some of the most judgmental, unkind people I've ever met, <laughs> unfortunately. And that doesn't, that doesn't bode well for trying to bring people into your community. No. And, you know, some of it is, and I talk about this in the chapter on uh, the angry vegan. So chapter five is, um, is anger. And, you know, we all get it. Like we all get, like anger is a very real response to the, you know, to the injustice we see and the violence we see perpetrated against other beings. It is horrific. Most of us are motivated by that to even make the change in the first place. I was, I mean, my, it, but for me, underneath the anger is sorrow. It's sadness. And I think what the problem is, is that sorrow and sadness are not as culturally supported as anger is. It is very different to, you know, to, if you presented to the world tears and sadness when talking about animals, it would be a very different response that you get from people than when you talk like this. But because anger is just so much more supported, we we encourage people to, to, to lead with anger when really if we led with the sorrow that is really underneath it, people would be more receptive to it. So I think, again, it comes down to the conversation about compassion, that people think that if you're compassionate to uncompassionate people, that means you're condoning bad behavior. It's the same thing. I think people think if you're not angry all the time, it demonstrates that you don't care. And so my world, my life, my work is all about helping people walk the line between saying that's not okay. And I'm going to help change that. And I don't want to be part of that. And that makes me angry. 
and, uh, and, all, and also saying, but I don't have to be angry all the time to, to prove that I care. I don't have to demonstrate outrage to demonstrate that I'm righteous. And I think that's what it comes down to. So, it, so it's not to say like anger is bad. It's not to say that passion is, shouldn't be there. We need to be passionate. We need to have something that's driving us, but that doesn't mean you have to sustain it in a way that frankly is ineffective as an advocate, but also unhealthy uh, and unsustainable. You can't sustain that kind of outrage without there being some ill effects. Yeah, I, I think it just hurts you because of course the injustice is towards animals is the most horrific thing. And that's why those of us that became vegan for ethical reasons are, are that way, but us going around angry all the time at the injustice, it doesn't do anything to improve their situation. Not really. That's right. That's exactly right. We need to be strategic. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be smart. We need to be intelligent. We have to have a plan, right? It's, you know, there is a time to go out into the streets and scream and wave your flag. There is a time for that, but you can't do that all the time. We need to change laws. We need to change minds. We need to change hearts. We need to change policies. These are the kinds of things we need to do. And we have to be strategic in those things. We can't just always just literally be rattling the cage. Um, you can, it's just, it's not really in the end gonna have much of an effect. And in, and in the end, it's gonna make people not attracted to you. And I mean that, I don't mean that in a superficial way. I mean, literally anger doesn't attract people, right? Passion attracts people, openness attracts people, right? Information attracts people. But in the end, we don't wanna repel people. We, I think, I think we want to welcome it. And yet I do think there are some people who, uh, who is it that says it, that wants to make veganism the smallest club in the world, right? Because we want to just shut out everybody who doesn't think the way we do. And good luck with that. Like, that's also not going to work. You know, it's interesting because as, as somebody who started, I mean, I'm still an ethical vegan. That's why I started. It, it took me 26 years to even eat a vegetable. So it's not like I was shouting this at the beginning. I find that it really wasn't until the movie Forks Over Knives, which is, it was about health. It was a wonderful film. And then movies like Game Changers, that seems to be what brings at least newer people. And I don't want to say more, but, the, but like the older people. And so I think of those as a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, most of us walk through one door, uh, um, but we wind up staying for many reasons um, because we can care about more than one thing at a time. So this idea that you're only an ethical vegan or you're only a health-based vegan, like, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like we can care about all of these things at the same time. We don't have to choose one, but that's the problem. I use the analogy of like a stadium when we first arrive, you know, cause I, I actually have been really working with this idea and articulating this idea that I don't believe there is one movement. This idea that there's one movement called a vegan movement or this plant-based movement, there isn't one movement. There is a commonality that we all share, which is not eating animal products. But then within that commonality, there are so many different ways to live and think that could be raw, vegan, that could be plant-based, that could be no oil, that could be um, ethical, whatever. Like, There's so many ways. Those are the things that we share, right? Is not eating animal products, but there's, but we're not one single movement. The problem is if you think you're one single movement, you're going to see other people who don't think the same way you do as imposters, or you're going to see them as betraying the cause. That's because you think that everybody came in for the same reason and they didn't. So we need to just broaden our mind. And again, just worry about ourselves and talk about the things you care about. If, if you only want to talk about, you know, vegetables and cooking and health and what, 
then that's fine. You're going to attract the people who are interested in that. If you want to just talk about ethics and it doesn't matter, that's okay. So, so, you know, let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks because, you know, even though there might be some things that I don't agree with and some types of activism I don't agree with, someone else might be interested in that. I'm going to keep doing what I do and attract the people who are attracted to my message. Same thing with all of these documentaries. So, so we need to make sure that our, our arms are as wide as possible to be able to welcome as many people as possible who are interested in as many different things as possible and not blame them for then not thinking the way you do or can't, or, you know, blame them for not coming through the same door you did. And I agree. And I, you know, I, I talked to you a little bit about the show. Like I, I have people that are doing great things in the world, but if they're like not perfect, I mean, the, not, I'm not saying you guys watching right now, but, but certain people just jump on any slight imperfection. Like for example, like me, my dog's not vegan. I could lie about it and just say she is. I, I, I rescued her very old. I tried. She's very small. She does eat the vegan kibble, but she eats three ounces of meat a day. I feel terrible about it. So I mean, you know, what do I do if I walk her and there's a dead animal, she'll try to eat it. You know what I'm saying? And so, but I get criticized for that all the time, even though I've been vegan for 44 years, which is longer than most people and have helped so many people be vegan, but it's like people take, they'll find the one area to just get, you know, well, you know, it's just, this is just ridiculous because Caroline says we don't need a few perfect vegans. We need tons of people eating less animals and more plants. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, my motto is don't do nothing because you can't do everything, do something, anything. And the problem is that, you know, the way I talk about veganism, AJ, is different than a lot of people because I actually don't see veganism as the goal. Like the goal isn't to be vegan. The goal isn't to wear this badge called vegan. The goal is not to be part of a club called vegan. The goal is optimal wellness and unconditional compassion. And the way to get there, as we have all found, the really the best way to get there and the most enjoyable way to get there is through being vegan. And so for me, being vegan is the means to the end. The end is compassion, not the mean, not, not the end. So when you think about being vegan as the end, then what happens is you're just get really caught up on perfection and purity, right? Because that that because you think that's the barometer. The barometer is this perfection, but that's not that's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is that it's a means to an end. And that means that we're going to be imperfect because we're human beings and we live in an imperfect world. But to make the best effort to do the best we can, I mean, that's what we need to support people and that's what we need to cheer people on. It's not betraying the animals because, you know, because, um, because, you know, someone's eating peanut butter that was processed on a machine that had used, you know, dairy or eggs. Like that is not the, like the problem, right? The problem is that 10 billion land animals are killed every year in the United States. And there's so much waste in the slaughterhouses because we kill so many animals that they use those byproducts to make money, to make profit, uh, and they put them in all of these other different things. Okay, let's just reduce the number of animals who are killed, which would reduce the amount of byproducts there are, which would increase the cost of those byproducts, and they wouldn't be showing up in everything. So, so big picture, let's focus on not killing animals rather than focus on this purity. It, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. It just, it might make you feel good, but it doesn't. Well, but that's what the abolitionists do, unfortunately. And so for example, my, you know, I say at the beginning of your show, this is where I introduce you to amazing people who are doing great things in the world. That's really what my show is about. And yes, I'm vegan and almost every guest has been vegan, but every now and then I'll have somebody like Dr. David Katz and Dr. Walt Willett. They're, they're very close, but 
But like when you have these, they're icons in the nutritional world. And yet for people to attack them, I mean, that's just, it's just crazy. It almost makes me sometimes just not want to do anything. You know what I'm saying? When, when people attack fine people that are doing great world, but because it's, you know, not 100%. And that's what the abolitionists do. And I find there's a lot of infighting in veganism, sort of like in Judaism. You know, we were raised Orthodox Jewish, or actually we were raised conservative, to be honest, but my parents sent me to parochial Orthodox school. So all my friends were Orthodox and I could see like Orthodox, you know, the Hasidic Jews criticize the Orthodox for not being Jewish enough. And the Orthodox criticize the conservatives who criticize, criticize the reform and the, and, and all the different other factions. And it's like, I thought we were all on the same team. And I find that so much with veganism that, that, that there's just all this infighting when we shouldn't be the, I'm not saying that the others should be the enemy, but why are we focusing our attention fighting with each other's instead of if we're going to fight with the people that are hurting, murdering animals, killing animals, it just, this is, it just drives me crazy sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to just kind of put it aside because it can drive you crazy. But I mean, like, look, I mean, you can look at all of these schisms that have happened in religion and all of these different philosophical uh, movements over the course of many centuries. This is what human beings do. Um, I mean, there's a term for it. It's literally the, the, the concept is that, um, that you're more likely to criticize someone who's closer to you than to criticize uh, someone who's farther away. Some of it has to do with low hanging fruit, right? So that you're, you're the, you're my people. So I get to criticize you. Uh, so some of it is that some of it is people's own, you know, sense of purity and imperfection. I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing that all the time. And we're also living in this time where we really are in these, you know, like, siphons like we're you know when you, when when you when you aren't exposed to different ideas and other people's way of thinking you don't know how to manage disagreement right so i talk about this in it's all in the joyful vegan all of this the factions the infighting the, um, the, the communication, the how to just understand that there's gonna be people in the world who don't agree with you, but that doesn't mean they're evil people. And so if we don't ever, ever engage with someone who doesn't think the same way we do, we're never going to learn to do that. We're never gonna be able to, uh, to, to, you know, to, we're never gonna be able to even articulate our own ideas well, because if you don't have someone you're, you're arguing against, how do you hone your ideas? Like, that's why, like, in debate, you would, like, part of debate is actually presenting your, the opposing views, view, like, learning to, you should know your opposition's view as well as you know your own, so that you can actually argue yours better. So that's the stuff that we're missing. I think we're missing debate in schools. I think we're missing, uh, you know, the ability to, to just hear someone else's viewpoint without, um, without just wanting to shut them down or calling them evil or saying, you know, I mean, we're seeing that in every aspect of society right now. We're just seeing it everywhere. It's not new. It's been happening for centuries, but we're definitely seeing it in our own community. So what do we do? We do the best we can. We keep doing our work. AJ, you keep doing your work. And, and you know, in the end, again, this is always going to happen. We're never going to stop that from happening. But I think we can be models of compassion and models of um of, of what it looks like to 
to, I mean, to offer opposing views. And I mean, I hear what you're saying. You're not, you're, you're not even saying that you're offering an opposing view. It's just that someone who doesn't live in the same uh, way of thinking that your, your audience, some of your audience members might, but yeah, I mean. All you know, and it's so funny because, you know, I, I try not to be a, a rude host ever. Like I had, I've had one guest be rude to me and it was kind of awkward, but I don't want to be that person that's going to attack people. And yet sometimes when people are like that, I, I feel like saying, well, what have you done? You know what I'm saying? You're a like, for instance, I'll, okay. I, I'm not like, I, 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 I was listening to your podcast about how you like to get hot water on an airplane and not take a plastic cup. And I was thinking what you need to do is get it before you get on the plane because coffee tea, uh, coffee bean and tea leaf and Starbucks will pour it right into your thermos the way that you want it done. But that's what I was wanting to tell you. But, you know, sometimes on my, I, I had, I have, a torn rotator cuff and I had a trigger thumb. And so I'm doing a recipe on my show and I'm opening up a can, uh, not a can, a bag of vegetables that are already in plastic. And I mean, the, the amount of attacks you get for that when, um, and first of all, we have a pandemic right now and where I live, you can't even get produce the way you used to without being wrapped in plastic. But sometimes I feel like saying to these people, what are you doing? What have you done? I know I've helped a lot of people and animals. So it drives me crazy. Or like when they attacked Dr. McDougall, who was on the show last week and will be on again Friday, they stopped him from speaking at a veg fest because he said he eats turkey every other Thanksgiving. And it's like an ounce and it's, and, I, and I'm not even sure that's really real that he does that. But the point is, is it's like, you know, what's that saying? Don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Something like that. Yeah, for sure. First of all, I do get water before I go on the plane. <laughs> Second of all, there was a situation where they would not give me water without charging me and I refused to pay $2 for hot water. Third, I drink so much tea when I'm on planes that I have to keep filling it up. Uh, <laughs> That's a, anyway, I was just, that was funny. You know, I wanted to ask you like, so I, I mean, I struggle too, you know, so don't just, even when I do something, I, I'm, first of all, I'm very aware. So when I use plastic, even though I'm not perfect, I'm aware. I'm not like doing this willful blindness. I'm not saying, oh, it's okay because of this. No, I don't make excuses. I know that I'm not perfect. Um, but I sometimes struggle with, I always like to support companies that not, I mean, I only buy things obviously that are hundred percent vegan with the exception right. of the three ounces of meat that Bailey eats today. Every, and I, I mean, I do my best. I, maybe I'm not perfect, you know, whether it's makeup or whatever. And I also look into the company and especially if they're going to be somebody that I promote on the show that the company, I mean, I, I can't, guarantee that everybody that works for that company is vegan, but at least the person in charge, you know, they're ethical vegans kind of thing. But then sometimes what happens is a company gets bought by a company that isn't. And I have a dilemma. Like, for example, uh, there was a product, there is a product called Larabar. And I remember when that came out, I think it was in 2003 and 2004, a very clean product. It's like a nut and a fruit, right? And, and, my, and my husband likes them. So, and I, I used to eat them a lot when I was heavier, but they're delicious. And then it, it's bought by General Mills or General Foods. I forget which one. And I don't want to support them. So what do you do in a case like that? Yeah, you know, you just, you, in the end, we always have to make our own decisions and draw our own lines. I mean, it's just the way it is. So there's a difference between, you know, you making a decision about what you want to support and what you don't want to support and, you know, and there being a movement to boycott that company completely, right? So like, so that's the difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the end, all we can do is, you know, don't do nothing because you can't do everything. We all want to make good decisions. I mean, there are times where I spend, you know, 15 minutes washing out glass bottles. And then I had to order something from, you know, online 
that I couldn't get otherwise. And it comes with some packaged, pla you know, packaged um, plastic packaging. So, you know, I want to be like, well, what's the point? Why should I even bother washing those, you know, those glass jars so I can keep them? Well, because we just do the best we can. That's really in the end, all we can do, right? So I, so again, regarding, regarding veganism, regarding zero waste, whatever it is, you know, people tend to do nothing if they think they have to do everything. So the idea is to encourage all of us to do the best we can. What's better, doing nothing at all or doing something that gets us closer to where we want to be? I think doing something is better than doing nothing uh, personally, because that's what people do. They throw up their hands and say, well, this is pointless. Why should I even try? Well, because that's a good thing, because in the end, that intention also matters. Yeah. You know what you're talking about? And I'd love for you, and I'll send you the link to listen to episode 161 of Dr. Doug Lyle's Beat Your Genes podcast, because what you're talking about is a really interesting psychological phenomenon called the ego trap. And that could explain it. And I'd love for you to check that out, because okay. this, is, this is what I'm thinking this is. So here's a question from a live viewer. How can we cope with the recurrent injustice upon animals? I find it so overwhelming sometimes it depresses me. Yeah, exactly. So I talk about this. So I talk about this a lot in The Joyful Vegan. And I talk about really where we decide to orient ourselves and what we decide to focus on. So I'm known um, to be very hopeful. I'm known to be very optimistic and very positive. And I know it can be uh, like, how can you possibly be hopeful at a time like this? How could you possibly be hopeful? I'm hopeful because I choose to be. And I'm hopeful because that's where I choose to look. You can dwell on all of the horrors out there. There are so many, there always will be. Right, but if that's all we look at, if that's all we dwell on, and this is what I was talking about in the bearing witness chapter, that if, if that's all we look at, of course it's gonna take its toll. I mean, that's what, um, there's an expression called comp compassion fatigue. I actually don't like the term compassion fatigue because I don't think we can be fatigued of compassion. I think it's more empathic distress when we're constantly, constantly feeling so empathetic and feeling so bad for someone who's suffering, it distresses us. So you can just keep looking over there or you can look at where there have been gains and you can look at where there has been progress. That's what I choose to look at. And then also choosing to do the work that I do is I all I can do in the end is what I do. All I can do is be a messenger of hope and be a messenger of compassion and, and work with local officials. I mean, that's why we started the East Bay Animal Pack. We work with local government officials to get animal-friendly legislation, to get animal-friendly legislators. Feel empowered, do the work that you need to do so that you feel empowered it's not that we shouldn't ever look. Of course we should look. And I talk about this in the book as well. We need to bear witness, but we don't have to stare. And I think that is the, the line that we have to walk is we need to look so that we are you know, taking responsibility, uh, but that doesn't mean we have to, to stare. So that would be my suggestion. And I really do encourage you to pick up the Joyful Vegan because I talk all about strategies for doing yeah. that. Is it on Audible? Because if it's on Audible, I'll listen to it for yeah. sure. I posted yeah. a link to it. Yeah, because I, I just, I love to listen. I, I, I've never been a guest on my own show. Can you see the comments? Because if you can't, I want to just read a few I of them. I cannot see the comments. That's good to know because uh, I'm so glad because yesterday there was a lot of not nice ones for John Mackey. So I'm glad that you can. So let me read some of them to you. So many people are 
just saying how beautiful your eyes are, how nice you were to them when they've met you at various veg fests. So many people started out with your book, The Joy of Vegan Baking. But I'd love to read this comment by Anne Marie. And she says, I make a big effort to lead by example. I may be the only example of a vegan that someone ever sees up close. My heart is open to all beings. I let people know that I've been much happier and connected to everyone since becoming vegan. This is a very important conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. So you, you, I love, I think the very first time, I, I can't remember that where I heard you speak first was at McDougal or at a VegFest, could have been one of the other, but you, you have a, a word that I love and it's excusatarian. <laughs> well, you're going to say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I just thought it was, it was funny. So, I mean, we all make excuses. We all did. We all do. It's part of the willful blindness. But I uh, I decided to call people who just make incessant excuses, excusitarians. And I think a lot of people can identify with that. So, uh, so people do. They get it. They get it. We don't have to be permanent excusitarians, but we all make excuses. And, and you know, I mean, that's, again, the nature of, of human beings. Oh boy. So I don't know what the statistics are, but there's not a lot of vegans in the world, uh, you know, percentage wise, there's, there's probably more vegetarians. Why do you think it's, it's such a tough sell? Because you would think if somebody just, you know, like Paul McCartney said, if slaughterhouses had windows, but you wonder really, cause I, I mean, so many people, their, their hearts are closed to even that they, they just, they don't care. And how do you wake people up? I mean, cause we have, it's like Dr. McDougall says, it's no longer about, you know, even compassion for animals or, or, or the aesthetics or, or your health. It's like, we have a planet to save that is going to vanish if we keep eating the amount of animals we're eating. Yeah. That is the question. That is the big question. And I do, I mean, I don't mean to keep saying it, but I do talk about it in the Joyful Beacon because I wanted to answer that question as well, because I asked that question as well. Um, yeah, again, we are social creatures. Uh, we, you know, we're very good at, at avoiding looking at what we need to look at. And the industries are very good. The thing that's so interesting about the industries and the euphemistic language they use, and you know, we all take it on as well. Uh, and vegans do this too. And vegans will say things like regular milk and normal milk and vegan milk. I mean, if vegans use the word vegan one more time, my head's gonna explode because we overuse the word vegan to make it sound like it's such a different food group. It's such a different thing when really it's fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and beans and mushrooms and grains and herbs and spices. But when we keep saying vegan, 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 like, would you like a vegan banana? It's a banana. Like there's no, there's no vegan banana and non-vegan. It's a banana. So we need to just demystify for people because if people think it's a different club and it's different from what their identity is, they're going to resist it. So so that's one of the issues is again, it comes down to us being social creatures, AJ, and a lot of it comes down to identity. So when people feel like their identity would be threatened, that their whether it's their masculine identity or their cultural identity or their religious identity, right? If those things seem to butt up against this thing called vegan, then they're going to choose the thing that is familiar to them, which is their identity. So I talk about that in The Joyful Vegan about how to navigate that for people and, and help them realize this is not antithetical to your identity. We hold many different identities and compassion is one of our identities and our desire to be well is one of our identities. Um, but that's a big part of it is how we navigate in the world as an individual and how we navigate as part of this larger social group. If we think that we're going to be outside of our social group, it is one of the most stressful things. You might not think it, 
you might not feel it consciously, but not being part of this, not having social belonging is one of the most stressful things for human beings. And if they see vegan as being something that's antithetical to what they already experience, they're going to resist it. And so I was going to say what I think is really interesting about the euphemistic language that the industries use, and of course, keeping it all hidden from us, is that they know we're so compassionate that we would be bothered by it. So they have to use language that's going to, again, couch our behavior and their practices in a way that makes it seem positive, right? So we say, you know, I did it. I said I bought humane meat and I bought organic eggs and I did all the things that you do when you say, well, I'm still doing that, but I'm still a good person, right? But, you know, I'm still a good person. I'm not going to change too much, um, but I'm still doing the right thing. The industries know that about us. And so they tap into that compassionate part of us. And I think that's what's the most interesting thing about the excuses we make. So, so what's the answer? We keep speaking the truth. We keep doing the work we do. I am so encouraged by the, or the companies who are creating these incredible products like Miyoko's. Like, I mean, like game changer, right? I mean, like Mio, like why was it so hard to create really delicious cashew-based cheese? Like it's so simple, right? Um, so I'm so encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by the potential for clean meat. I am, I do think there is a, a potential market there. Um, so I'm encouraged by all the innovators who are coming out with all the different solutions. It's not gonna be one solution. It's not going to be one solution. I wish more people understood that there's been alternatives to meat before all of the, you know, vegan meats came on the market. They're called vegetables. Like you and I know this, right? We've been teaching cooking for how many years, right? I mean, we know this, but it's still people want convenience. They want it fast. They want something familiar. They want that, you know, they want what they grew up with. I mean, that's what we all want. You know, most of us who grew up in the US, we don't crave the things that people eat in West Africa. We don't crave the things they eat in Indonesia because we grew up wanting these things, eating in a particular way, plating our food in a particular way, you know, eating the meat, eating the dairy, right? That's why we crave these things is because that's all we've ever known. So I, I get that. But, you know, it's not going to be just me teaching people how to make great vegetables. I'm not going to stop doing that, but it's not going to be just that. It's not going to just be the products. It's not going to just be um, the, the policies. It's not going to just be the laws. It's not going to just be changing people's minds. It's going to be all of these things together. So that's why I always encourage, and one of the stages in the Joyful Vegan is, is, is the stage of finding your place. What's your, what's your role in this? If you want to be part of the solution, Ask the questions, what am I good at? What do I love? What am I passionate about? And what does the world need? We need all of it. We need all of it. If there was one way to do this, we would have done it by now. There's not one way. So all of us have to do what we think is the most meaningful and effective and be effective and do it well. Yeah. Well, I think that might've been the best line I've heard on this show. There's always been an alternative to meat. It's called vegetables. <laughs> that is hilarious. Mitzi says, I met Colleen at San Francisco Veg Fest a few years ago and she hasn't aged a bit. And I said the same thing to her. It's like she has frozen in time. So she must be doing something right. Yeah, this is this. I mean, this is just really such an important conversation and that people need to have. And I, I hope they'll listen to your podcast because you discuss this in so many different episodes. Because it's, you know, I, I love what you said about the reasons people stop being vegan. People have to really understand that this is something that Dr. Lau talks about in the pleasure trap in his getting along without going along channel. It is because of that social piece, because, you know, when I think about it, I get attacked mostly by 
people that are ethical vegans that maybe aren't so healthy and maybe I'm confronting to them it's confrontational because I used to be heavy and I'm not. And, and I, I still am an ethical vegan, but I just eat a health promoting diet now. And, and they're always saying, well, you're doing such a disservice because you're making it so hard for people to be vegan. And I'm really trying to make it easy for people that suffer from food addictions to recover from that. I have, I have, you know, we all have our little different areas that we work in. I think we're all important, but I just wish my wish for compassion is that at least vegans would start being compassionate to each other. That's let's start there, you know? Yeah. Let's all just, I mean, if any time we're tempted to criticize somebody else, just turn it back on ourselves. I don't mean the criticism. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the questions and, and the, and the questioning, if we all just kind of took care of our own backyards, if we all just did the best we could, we were the most compassionate we could be, it really would be a very different world. We would push things along much faster. The amount of time, I mean, one of the things I'd encourage people to do is like try to have a day without complaining. I don't care if you're complaining about yourself or someone else or the world or this or the virus, whether it's raining, whatever it is, just try to have a day without complaining, right? It's very difficult to do. So anytime you're tempted to do that, go spend your time learning something new, spend your time trying to be the best person you can be, go spend your time and focus on all the things like, like you said in the beginning, you know, where I said that the people who are the least compassionate probably need our compassion most of all. Uh, if there are people, you, whatever you think is lacking in the world, go fill it. If you think AJ is not doing enough to promote healthy living or whatever it is, you go do that. If you don't think someone's being compassionate enough, you go be compassionate. If you don't think someone's speaking articulately enough, you go speak articulately. So take whatever you think is the problem with somebody else and you go fill that and you go make sure that that gap is filled. That would be my message to everybody. Amen, sister. And remember, my mom always said, when you're pointing a finger at someone, three are pointing back at you. This has just been such a wonderful conversation. If you, I, I think you're writing another book. Is that correct? Well, I'm always working on something. I mean, the two topics right now that are just really um, close to my heart is animology. So I just had a TEDx talk on animology, which is the animal related words and expressions we use. Um, so I'm always working on animology, um, but I'm also working on a zero waste um, book. And so it's in a very, very early stages. And it's a lot of recipes, a lot of homemade recipes and that kind of thing. But I'm just kind of helping people understand the concept because again, zero waste, that's also an aspiration. It is not about being perfect. It's an aspiration to value the things that we take in our lives and to take responsibility for what we take in uh, in our lives. So, um, so that's what I'm working on right now, but um, I'm always working on something. Well, anytime you have something to promote, please let me know and we can talk about it. And, and tell us about the cooking classes that you're doing online. Now, that wasn't something I'm, I was aware of. Yeah, it's so much fun. So, you know, I taught cooking classes for a long time. I taught them in Oakland here. I taught them for Dr. McDougall. I used to teach them for the Cancer Project. I mean, I, you know, cooking was one of the things I started as like one of my main forms of advocacy because people who were moved to make a difference and to make a change were like, okay, now what do I eat? And me, armed with my master's in English literature, I just started, I would start teaching cooking classes because that's what you do with a master's in English literature. So I started teaching cooking classes many years ago and, uh, and I stopped. And one of the reasons I stopped is because it's so much darn work. And especially when I was teaching for Dr. McDougall, he was like one of the last people I was teaching for, you know, driving up to Santa Rosa, it was an hour from here. I had to shop, I had to prep, I had to 
drive. I had to set up. I had to shut down. I had to carry everything. It's a lot of work unless you have like a dedicated space. So, um, but I, but I miss teaching. I love teaching and I love teaching cooking. And so after February, when I said I had the joyful vegan conference and we did it online and I became a little more adept at zoom than I had been, uh, I just pivoted and I said, let's teach a class and let's see if anybody shows up and let's see if anybody's interested. And I taught them weekly <laughs> through, uh, through the end of the year. So they went from April to the end of the year and we started up again in January. So, so people can join from wherever they are. We have a different theme every week. Uh, this one that's coming up is just, you know, quick and easy meals for lazy cooks and busy bees, I call it. Um, we're doing a homemade tofu. The homemade tofu class in 2020 was the most popular class because uh, people are just, they love the idea of making their own tofu. Uh, we've got pressure cooking classes, air fryer classes. So every, you know, we've got cuisines. I do Italian cuisine or Mexican cuisine or Thai cuisine. So, uh, so they've been super fun. And I just really love um, having people join. Lots of people come like for every class. And so a community has really built around them. That sounds great. And Linda Middlesworth, our mutual friend says, you are an amazing force for good, Colleen. Both you and Miyoko used to teach for Dr. McDougall and I actually get to do it now and I'm loving it. Did you enjoy your time there? Right. I love it. I love, I mean, the people who come are just so, they're just so open. They're just like, feed me, give me everything you could possibly give me. That is, I think, the mark of just the, there's the most beautiful thing about humans is when we're vulnerable and curious and just say, teach me, tell me what to do, tell me how to be better. And that's what I found about all of the participants at McDougal's. Like they're just, there's, I, I was in love with them. Absolutely. Yeah. I love, I love cooking for them. They're just so appreciative of the knowledge. So, and I'm so appreciative of your knowledge. And like I said, at the beginning, it's people like you and St. Miyoko that inspire me just to do a better job. And, and people like John Pierre, cause you know, I, I mean, I feel like I'm doing my best, but then there are times that I am an excusatarian and I know I can do better. And it's when I see people like you doing what you're doing, that just makes me want to try harder. You're doing great. Just don't pay attention to the to all of the negative stuff. Do your work and step back. That is the bottom line. Do your work, step back, plant your seeds, let them grow. The rest is not yours, but you're doing fabulous. And I love that you're pivoting and like you're also like all, all we can do is just keep asking like, what can I do better? What's my contribution? How can I make this world a better place? And we might get different answers, you know, and they might change. We don't have to stay stagnant and doing the same thing because that's what people expect or that's what we've, you know, that's the box that we got compartmentalized in. So just keep asking, keep growing, keep changing, keep evolving. That is what it means to be human. And we have a very limited time on this earth. And all we can do is just take advantage of every moment we have and do the best we can to, to make it the best world we can. So thank you for doing what you, you're doing to make it the best world we can have. Well, thank you. And remember what Colleen says, just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. That's right. Thanks. All so right. Much. Well, thank you, Colleen. It's been wonderful. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at the regular time of 11 a.m. Pacific time when we have St. Louis Veggie Girl making an eggplant makati, manicotti with tofu ricotta and cashew bechamel. And if you ever want to cook something on my show to promote your cooking classes, even just one recipe, I would love to see that as well. That'd be fun. Love it. All right. Thanks so much, Colleen. Take care.